Hello, and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and I am so happy to welcome a powerhouse couple to the show today. Dr. Miriam Borges-Thompson is a native Spanish speaker from San Juan, Puerto Rico. She is an educator and researcher of Latin American literature and history who specializes in uncovering and translating the language of previously untranslated Puerto Riqueña writers. Michael Clay Thompson has written somewhere around 100 books on language, literature, and grammar, and together they have done so much wonderful work as acclaimed authors, speakers, and teachers. I'm so happy to welcome them to the show. I wish I could be hugging you right now. <laughs> just imagine a big vocal warm hug. We would indeed. Okay. Yeah. Imagine this whole podcast is one long virtual <laughs> vocal hug, okay? I have a lot of technical aspects that I want to comment on related to what the camera work is like in the Spanish language version, because it is so superior to the Todd Browning version in every way, except for Carlos Fierias. He is just not Bella Lugosi. Um, and he's clearly trying to do something Bella Lugosi-ish that just isn't working for him. He just went with his eyes. He went with the eyes and the hands, and he has these short, stubby little hands, and it doesn't work. <laughs> but, um, but I also want to talk about the choice to cast a Spaniard in the role of Dracula and the fact that from the 30s through the 60s, in all of Mexican cinema, you only had Spaniards in the role of Dracula, except for a couple Argentinians, but it was mostly Spaniards, you know, and is it that metaphor of the colonial era of... Yes, because... Even the other actors and that, um, you know, you had a mix. That was one thing that, that I noticed, you know, the mix of accents in there from yeah. Argentina and and um, Central America. And, of course, you know, Lupita from Mexico. But they were all striving for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the Castilian? Yeah. Yeah. Because um, that was very old-fashioned thing, because even in Puerto Rico, I mean, I have met some friends of my grandmother who would just talk and give themselves, especially if they were appearing at a, a meeting or, um, oh, goodness, on television, you know, instead of saying plaza, a big mall. They were affected. It was plaza. And you know, they didn't talk that way and in everyday life, but... You know, for official things, they would go, th, th, th. sound very Spanish. eating a pizza. That's exactly how they would say it. <laughs> so, yeah, but that that was interesting. And, and I think, yes, it has a lot to do with trying to be part of the um, group that uh, was seen as the, the, the pure Castilian, um, the complex, you know, as a, uh, Spanish colonies and that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's all tied in. Yeah. And I, I am going to ask you later to kind of go into some detail about the relationship between how the colonies felt about trying to strive to be that Spanish accent, maybe if, if you don't mind. Okay. Later. Okay. When I was in school, I mean, a little girl, you know, I was always um, 
Oh, so I was talking, surprise, surprise, but <laughs> the teachers would choose, you know, I need somebody to recite a poem because every, every um, school event always starts with a poem, somebody reciting a poem. Okay. Um, and in the religious school, you know, you have the prayer, but then when the program starts with all those things, except the poem, and I was always picked for to memorize the poem and all that. And I did that. And I remember one teacher always trying to go over with me as I was going to memorize the, the poem, you know, and trying to do that Castilian thing. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> did you say that at the time that you weren't going to? No. Oh, no, no, no. I, I just listen. And, you know, then when the, the time came, I just did my thing. Okay. They were just happy to have somebody who would do it. So you never felt really like someone was standing over you insisting on the Castilian. No, no, it's not that way. They're okay. just they're just people who choose to do that. And I don't know if now, you know, it's done so much. Well, especially now that I think there's such a resurgence of Catalano versus Castellano. It makes mm -hmm. a huge difference when you mm -hmm. have the rise of Catalan, you know, as the uh, preferred language in schools, at least in Catalonia. And then you have on the other side, Castilian Spanish waning in its importance, given that so many people who are immigrating to other areas of the world are speaking other forms of Spanish. Yeah. And so it's now almost assumed that you're not going to be speaking Spanish Spanish if you're communicating with someone in Spanish. Yeah. And, and, and when I was tell somebody might say, okay, you're learning, you're learning Spanish. Well, I speak Castilian, but it's just the same thing. Yeah. It's uh, for a Latin American person, you know how it is when in, in English, when somebody can imitate a British accent, Mm -hmm. And they do that. And, you know, the controversy, I mean, I'm not going to mention Gwyneth Paltrow. But <laughs> 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 Her friends, you know, were like, why is she talking like that? You know, it's just they 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 knew her and, you know, and she grew up in New York and all that. And, and you know, she can just go into the British accent. But you have people who are not actors and their parents are not from Britain and, and, and they have born and they have grown up in the United States. And so they just, I don't know, sometimes want to have fun and they go into that British accent, right? Yeah. But, um, the, the difference is that for what I experience, you know, they, these people who choose to go with that Castilian and, you know, and that thing, they're, actually, they're not joking. They just want to sound that they are. And is it a part of wanting to be associated with the preferable form, the colonial form yeah. of the language? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So that kind of brings me back <laughs> to talking about Carlos Villarias mm -hmm. in Dracula. Mm -hmm. And in this particular production of Dracula, it's, Supposedly directed by George Medford. Now, this is a very problematic thing to have posted still on IMDb 
that George Medford is the sole director. Because as we know, Enrique Tovar Avalos is actually the one who yes. interpreted and actually was able to communicate with all members of the cast and crew. So in fact, he was the one who was actually doing the directing. Yes. Because George Medford did not speak a word of Spanish. He was not bilingual. The only one who was bilingual was Avalos, and therefore, am I saying that right? I think so. Okay. And therefore, he could really only be the one who could truly be said to be the director of this, even though people keep citing him as the interpreter everywhere. And Miriam, you and I know that's BS. Yes. <laughs> and he, I, I had the feeling that he was the one, you know, he, there were so many choices he did. It had to be. You know, he he had to be the one, and he, I don't know. You know, the length of some of the scenes. You know, the fact that one movie is longer than the other, and mm-hmm. these particular things here and there, and absolutely, has to be somebody who was understanding and reading the story in a different way. And what I find interesting is that Uncle George, apparently, as Lupita Tovar called him, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uncle George and Avalos are looking at the dailies from Todd Browning, who directed the Bella Lugosi version each night. And they are actually improvising on the spot mm-hmm. to improve upon what they are looking at. In today's movie industry, this would be absolutely unheard of. Usually you are planning out your shots in advance. You're trying to narrow down your budget, figure out exactly how you're going to get what scene, what prop in what place at what time. And for them to do this, to improvise on and riff on ideas that are in the original dailies from just that day and cover them within a night is unheard of today. And that alone is something about these Spanish language productions and these other foreign language productions that came out of Universal Studios and other studios that I just find incredible. The powerhouse factory working together that had to happen for that to actually come together as a project. It just blows my mind. I think that the intensity, um, not only of the delivery of the words, but the mannerism. I mean, there's been a lot written about this, but 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 I notice that as someone as young as Lupita Tovar, mm-hmm. she's very young, and she seems so intense. And that is coming from not a stereotypical view of, you know, Latina or something, you know, she's from Mexico. No, I just noticed um, that the, the, the way that she was moving in this film, that that to me adds to all that idea of the, the whole version of the, the Spanish version being longer. Yeah. Everything moves lower and everything was just kind of reflected I noticed this time that I I watched it the first time it was when I was teaching, you know, in in the 90s. But this time after watching the English version, I said, wait a minute, 
look at this. This guy, Renfield, he's coming to the castle and Dracula just greets him and say, we'll have some refreshments. You're tired. Da, da, da. There is a meal. There is yeah. a meal. With an American, in the English version, he cuts his fingers, a paper cut. Yeah. You know, we would make fun of that. That's silly. Yeah. <laughs> It would make sense. Here, it was a chicken or something. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a knife and he does. So for that, I mean, there is that um, side that we could appear more realistic. I don't know. That's that's what I thought. What do you think about that, Mr. Thompson? Yeah, I mean, we commented continually all through the, the Spanish version because every, you know, Everything was different. But, well, maybe let's let's first talk about Lupita Tovar's performance. Like, how did you react to Lupita Tovar in that particular performance? I thought she was, I thought she, there was an intensity there and a, a sense of authenticity there that I didn't get, I didn't get from the English film. I, I found, I found it gripping. I really, I didn't anticipate it. It didn't occur to me that the films would be so different as mm-hmm. they were. I I was shocked when I watched the Spanish language version, how much more it seems to be about the women and to be focused on Ava so very much when, you know, the 1931 version feels like it's just about Bela Lugosi. It's very strange to me because it's all about her performance and the way that she manages it's a combination of what the cinematographer is doing, what the directors are doing, her sensitive performance. She has this beautiful rapport in that one scene between her and Lucia, where they just feel so much more central in that version of the story. And then additionally, that camera work in that particular sequence is so stunning when they move from the mirror to yes. revolving around to the other side. Yes, yes. I mean, for that time period, that is like outstanding camera work. And did you notice how they were aware of the costume? You know, this Lucia mm-hmm. is wearing a negligee. She's wearing, it's transparent. Yeah, completely <laughs> transparent. In black. Yeah. And it's just, I thought, whoa, you know, they knew they're they're doing something. I mean, this is, and then everything, you know, she walked very slowly to the side of the bed, dressed like that. Yeah. And her head down and she's looking down. That was on purpose. Oh, yeah. It's all done, you know, by design. So I noticed that. You notice everything. Well, you have have a theater film (laughs) mindset. I just look for the monster. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, you know. We'll talk about the monster in a minute, but the yeah, woman is more interesting in this case. Miriam notices all the production values and all the details and all the choices that were made and, well, how, you know, everything. Well, the sound. I mean, you can't avoid it. Oh, the sound. Oh, superior. Yeah. The, you know, you hear the doors and everything. Yeah. And I told Mike, I said, oh, my gosh. Isn't it incredible? So imaginative. It's so imaginative. <laughs> and I have to tell you that I have a theory about what's going on with that. What? Okay. So follow me on this. Okay. The cinematographer, George Robinson, 
Mm -hmm. I am pretty darn sure that he was a passionate devotee of Fritz Arno Wagner, who was a German cinematographer who worked on Nosferatu, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Mm -hmm. and M by Fritz Lang that came out the exact same year as Spanish language Dracula. I'm telling you, those sound effects, the way that they play out is very akin to the way they play out in the movie M. Mm -hmm. It feels so much like the sound effects and their very deliberate cutting use with the visuals in M. And the fact that the two movies were made at the same time, Mm -hmm. maybe it's a stretch. But I I really feel like there has to be a connection there because George Robinson very clearly channels Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu in this film. Mm. And I I just feel the influence there. There must have been, there must have been some, I don't know, uh, level of comfort or camaraderie. There was something that happened in there because everybody felt... It seemed like they felt they were taking all these chances. They were. They were so experimental. And it's yeah. incredible. And and like when I talk about Lupita Tovar in here, I think part of why her performance is so wonderful is that she was given the freedom by the director and the other performers and the cinematographer in a way that the women probably weren't in the English language version. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at that monologue that she has with Juan and it's just heartbreaking when she's talking about why they can't get married. And yes. Oh yeah. And then when she becomes a vampire, she manages to be charming and sexy and dangerous in this amazing way where she was innocent before. And For such a young actress to be able to pull off that kind of bravura performance is just out of this world to me. The English movie is more like a a horror movie and the the Spanish movie is more like an art film. Yeah, I would agree. It feels more like a star vehicle, Mm -hmm. you know, because... Lugosi was, I mean, that was, that was his thing, you know, and, and he was a star when he had the chance, you know, to be uh, leading the play and then going to make the film. But I was thinking about Lupita Tovar and thinking about the difference in the uh, that intensity we were talking about. And I try to remember, because I wait a minute, I remember reading something that was written about her. So I looked it up. I said, let me see, I remember this for so many years. And it was a book written by Lupita Tovar's son, who, I don't know, he called himself Pancho. Pancho's a nickname, yeah, yeah. but it was Francisco, right? Yeah. So Pancho Connor. And he, the title of the book is uh, Lupita Tovar, Mexico's Sweetheart, or, or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. She tells the story to her son about when she was growing up and they had to, her family, because of the political troubles that they were going on in Mexico at the time um, that they had to be, uh, the family has to move. The father decides to take everybody and they go in a train and the train, she gets to see all these dead bodies hanging because it was that war with the Cristeros uh, and all that. I mean, that's a terrible part of that history in, in Mexico, but it was so cruel. And, 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 and she mentions, you know, seeing 
all these bodies, you know, just hanging all the way and, and tells about the distance, you know, the, the train from the town they left where her family's ranch was to her grandmother's place or something like that. But anyway, to see that as a young person, mm. and this movie is about death and that struggle, the Cristeros, you know, they they were defending, you know, the, the, the institution of the church, trying to defend the status quo and, and, you know, what the church represented against the, um, the bad guys, right? So there was an awful lot of blood. Um, that was her experience in Mexico. That was, she was growing up and that's what she saw. I can only imagine, you know, an image like that. And so that will just mark you for life, right? Yeah. So she told that story and her yeah. son, you know, that's one of the things that he writes about. You know, she was, by all accounts, you know, great. She retired from acting and she was a wife and mother. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in, in that book too, that's what I saw that reference to. Which she, she, she goes with her husband and they get married in her husband's hometown or something. And she starts talking about um, Hitler and what was going on in Europe at the time. And this is before, you know, this is how Hitler was just acquiring, you know, one little step at a time, one more thing, trying something and getting away with that. And, you know, and all that. There are some comments about that. Anyway, I digress. But I was thinking about death, you know. Well, that, no, but I mean, that that is important to to understand where a lot of her maturity comes from in this role and where she gets a lot of her ideas and her depth mm-hmm. that she's clearly plumbing the depths of her soul in this film. You, you wouldn't normally expect a teenager to have that kind of. Yeah. But, that, but, but that's just me. I mean, that's, I have no, no research um, done on that other than remembering, you know, reading about that. But what do you think? What? well okay let me let me just say i also think that one of the things that makes this more about lupita tovar than Mm -hmm. any of the than the english language dracula is also that i find this version infinitely sexier and very deliberately so okay i recognize that this is pre-code but even so having the the long lingering shots of Dracula, you know, covering Lucy on the bed, you know, that's pretty suggestive mm-hmm. uh, for the time. The, the other shots that have, you know, the negligees for both women that are very, very see-through. Mm-hmm. The, the plunging neckline as the men are looking at her vampire bite. These scenes have this overriding sexual tension that doesn't really exist for me in the 1931 Dracula. I mean, is this just me? Do you read Bela Lugosi's Dracula as an enormously sexual film? Not at all. Mm-mm. Not at all. A lot of people I, call Bela Lugosi super sexy in that Yes, that. He was um, successful combining the sex appeal of Rodolfo Valentino. If he he were sexy, I would not have noticed. My mind doesn't run that way. 
I well, would, I mean, did you find Lupita Tovar's sexual appeal in there versus the women in? It's there in the Spanish version, but I didn't yeah. see any, I didn't see that in the English version. The Spanish version has a depth in in any number of dimensions. It has a depth that the English version doesn't have. I was on the edge of my seat in the Spanish version. It was scarier because we haven't talked about. Uh, you I, know. I, I sort of disciplined myself to watch the first, the English version. <laughs> I know. And it's so hard when you see the strings on that bat in the daytime, you know, coming right at you. And some <laughs> of those shots are so cheesy in the English language version. But the atmosphere that they get from shooting at night, there's something magical about that. And then having a cinematographer who plays with light and shadow so well and uses that staircase. Oh my God, the shots with the staircase were just perfect. I honestly got chills. I would say it would be easy to attribute it, you know, that he was using his eyes so much or something, you know, that be so um, dramatic. <laughs> La teatralidad, you know, mm-hmm. but. That was part of, you know, the the uh, the times that was expected. I don't think that was the. It was it was more his voice. It was more his his spirit was possessed or something. I don't yeah. know. He really, God, I agree with uh, what the critics, you know, they they say they 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 think um, the Spanish Dracula they didn't quite come to at the same level, but that. Pablo Alvarez Rubio steals the scene every time he's with the Dracula. Oh, absolutely. That's definitely true in my opinion. And what I love about the film is that, you know, in that first scene where he's dining with the Count, he has the style of a silent actor, you know, which is obviously like, you know, we're just at the period where we're moving from silent film into sound. Mm-hmm. And then he explodes into this full-throated madness when they're on the ship. And you get these lovely abstract expressionist shots on board the ship and he's laughing maniacally. Mm-hmm. And then it's like this performance just overflows from his soul and it's just radiant. I love it. And I noticed that in the English version, they had more and more expensive uh, special effects for the oh, show yeah. and oh, the yeah. store. <laughs> yeah. And so, it's less effective. <laughs> the films of the, you know, the gods, uh, they just say, okay, wait a minute, you do that. Well, let me give you this performance by this actor. And he just goes and, in that scene, yeah, I agree. That was that was powerful. And the reaction shots of the sailors, too. I mean, yeah. those worked so well, the way that they were cut in. Why did you think that in the version in English, there was this young girl in the theater come uh, in London, outside the theater, and she's selling, is it violets or some flowers? Yeah. And Dracula comes to her and you know maybe something happened to her, yeah. right? But in the in Spanish, you don't see that scene. Yeah. And I wondered what that was about. And I wondered if that was related to the tradition of selling the flowers for the dead and not wanting the flores por los muertos lady to be assaulted in some way, that that was considered mm. a violation that was... 
I, I, I that was my only thought when I looked at that. No, I, I just thought at the time I thought, well, I wonder if they eliminated that thinking, well, do, do we have that in, in our countries? I know that there's some shows, uh, some uh, zarzuelas, as famous La Violetera, which is a favorite by Vargas Llosa. I mean, it appears in Tennessee Williams' Streetcar Named Desire is where mm-hmm. you see that trope, really. Yeah, I don't know why. But one thing that I would like to study in the future would be this representation of the the characters, all the female characters, they are, yes, beautiful. They're, they're presented as uh, sensual females and, and they have the, the, the costumes. Uh, that's one thing that Lupita Tovar says in the interview from the Spanish version. She said that her, she saw what the other, um, that her, the difference in the costumes are hers. Yeah. That all hers were more provocative, let's yes. say. But at the same time, she, you can see her being over. Um, her father was always telling her what to do. She was an ingenue. She was protected um, and all that. So in Latin America, and, and we have a, a um, view of uh, women that it's, uh, I don't know, probably a reason that we have the machismo. You know, that you can see a woman can be an angel or can be the devil. And those two, you know, the La Virgen, or prostitute, you know, it is a role of the father to keep the family, the honor, and the honor is deposited and the behavior of the daughters, wife, all that kind of thing. But in this, in the movie, you see both visions of a female in the Spanish culture. You see, and, and you see it not, I'm not thinking of Lucia, because she's not developed so much, but but Ava. Yeah. And you see her. I mean, she's very um, sensual. The way she moves, you know, the, all that. The camera follows her, you know, her, her way she's dressed and everything. But at the same time, she's very innocent. You know, her daddy's telling her, you got to go to bed now. I mean, so she was a child. And... Those two, you know, are together as one. Oh, I don't know that maybe that, that I'm trying to see what is it that it makes it so fascinating that it's a movie from 1931 and you still look at, oh, you know, what is it? <laughs> I'm just following this. Well, it's an interesting cultural conundrum because it is exactly what you're saying. You know, it is that vision of both. Again, it's pre-code Hollywood, so they're allowed to get away with it still, where they can't after the Hayes Code comes in mm-hmm. and censorship reigns, and then you can't express those kinds of ideas quite so freely. Yeah. And and it's it's ironic because a lot of the ideas that are expressed visually in this film are things that you don't actually see until much later. I, I mean, I, I look at some of the shots and some of the ideas that are presented like what you're talking about. And a lot of those ideas are very modern to the extent that we're only seeing them expressed maybe in the last 
10, 15 years, yeah. at least explicitly in cinema. One of the things that, I mean, if I, if I could go yes. on a little bit of a, of a non sequitur. One of the things I'm all about non sequiturs. Me too. <laughs> the, one of the things that I kept thinking about during when we were watching the films was this. I never thought that vampires were scary. I never thought vampires were frightening. And now I always thought they, you know, they were sissies and they didn't scare me at all. And, you know, they were hissy and, you know, they just sort of, they, t- they stood too straight. And, uh, and I just didn't think about it. And eventually I had, what I did was I read the book. Eventually I read Dracula and it scared the hell out of me. And it wasn't anything like I had ever imagined based on anything I knew about the popular image of vampires or the popular image of Dracula or Bela Lugosi. You know, it wasn't anything like that. It was genuinely terrifying and vivid and overwhelming. And part of that had to do with it being an epistolary novel. And because it was an, an epistolary novel and, and well executed, it had the possibility, it, it felt like I was reading documents all the time, accounts of something that actually happened. Yeah. And so you had the author of the letter, whether it was Jonathan Harker or whoever it was, the author of the letter sort of stood between you and the event in a, in a different way than straight narration does. So... I found myself, I guess, maybe almost troubled by all the decisions that were made in the in the Bela Lugosi Dracula, because I didn't think I didn't think that they captured the essence of the book at all. No. So, so then I was surprised when I was frightened by the Spanish version, because the Spanish version was scary. Now, can I say something else that is a sort of generally accepted truth? within most horror circles that I follow, which is that the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula is very elegant, but is also coded to be queer. It is not explicitly stated at any point that he is homosexual, but he is meant to be effeminate in his mannerisms. He is meant to be associated with the other in certain kinds of ways. And I actually recently attended a wonderful lecture at the Miskatonic Institute, specifically about the queer Gothic and how people construe the queer Gothic in certain ways and how this actually, as a construction in cinema, starts with Bela Lugosi. Hmm. And that Bela Lugosi is really the first time that you see someone who has to be put in his rightful place because he's, you know, somehow subverting the natural order of things because of whatever perversity he has. Yeah. And they played that up for whatever set of reasons in that English language version, whereas they went the route of actually following the book in the Spanish language version. And additionally, the Spanish language version, I find also captures the moodiness of it as a gothic romance rather than queering it, per se, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The monster in the book is a predator. The monster in the book is is a monster, a carnivore, a predator, and you you have a much greater sense of danger 
Yeah. I mean, in the, in the, actually, to some extent, in both of these versions that we're talking about, the people in the scenes, they know, at least for at some point, they know that that's Dracula. They know that he's a vampire and they talk about it. And, and, and th- that seems odd, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it still seems very odd to me when I watch either version and you see the confrontation with Ava slash Mina, where it's clear she's a vampire. And at the same time, you have, you know, someone calmly talking to Dracula in the drawing room. And then eventually a cross comes out. But it's like, we have to have the slow build to that. Like, we're going to talk like civilized people because you're so charming. Well, for me to watch this, I mean, one of the things was I got to watch this with Miriam. Mm-hmm. which is a d- different experience entirely. Of course it is. Because, you know, because- <laughs> Tell me she, about this experience. Yeah, as she's watching, I mean, there are layers and layers of interpretation pouring out of her seamlessly. And, and you, I mean, just in this conversation, I'm aware that she, she's talking now about layers of interpretation that she didn't mention to me. <laughs> that I, you know, I had no idea that she thought all the things that was aware of all the things that she is aware of. And, you know, we always have this joke. Anytime we watch a movie, you know, she knows in about nine seconds what's going to happen. And, you know, she's, she knows in the first scene, you know, like this, she's pregnant and it's by this guy and he's he's actually the killer and, and all these things. And our, our joke is that I'm aware, you know, I like the pretty colors and I, <laughs> I, like, I like the ducky and the horsey. That's not the case for her. So it was fun for me to watch these films with her because all this the sorts of things that the two of you were talking about for a while, for both of you, with your theatrical experience and your sense of film and composition and all those things that you're aware of. I mean, that's that's enlightening, you know, illuminating for me, because for the most part, I'm waiting for the monster. <laughs> OK. And does the monster ever appear? Not in either of these movies. Okay. Not the monster I know from the book. That, that thing, yeah. that thing will rip your guts out. It will. And it and it's funny because there are very few representations of that monster right. in cinema. I don't know that I've ever seen it done well. No, it, actually, there's a really great comic book that does it well um, that I reviewed this year that I recommend to anyone who likes horror comics. But uh, what, yeah. what, what is it? So the name of <laughs> the comic book is going to earn me an explicit rating on this uh, particular Uh-oh. episode, Uh-oh. but it is called Dracula Motherfucker. And it is a noir set in the 70s. It is like nothing I've ever seen the way that it is drawn because it opens in Vienna, in fin de siècle Vienna, and then it goes to 1970s LA, and it's from the bride's perspective, and it is the monster, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as the monster should be portrayed. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous comic. It is just stunning and very well written. I think I can remember the title. So that's that's what I recommend for a true representation of the mythic monster. I also wanted to kind of bring up the idea of why it is that starting in 1931, they cast Carlos Villarias as Dracula, and then they choose to cast Spaniards as 
Dracula in every Mexican Dracula movie from the 1930s to the 1960s. And I always feel like that has colonial implications. It's the idea of the outsider that's bleeding Mexico dry. Yes. And it feels like such a visceral metaphor that they always choose a Spaniard to play this part. (laughs) And we were talking earlier about the choices that the cast makes as far as their particular accents are concerned. Mm -hmm. But how do you feel about this? As a Puerto Rican, Um, it's, um, it was fascinating to hear the different accents and knowing how the actors, you know, they're coming from different places, but then you would have the ones from Spain, they stay with the, the the particular, um, accents and, and intonations and all that. And particularly that, (laughs) and others who were trying to, at times match that because that is seen as the more, traditional um, and your question about the Draculas being from Spain, were they more European than then a um, Latin American Spanish. And in our uh, countries, we, it's, it's, it's complicated because yes, we do have the trouble, the problems with racism and that, but there's so many layers of that because we look in so many different ways physically. I mean, within the mm-hmm. same family, you have um, different eye color combination, skin, hair, and all that in, you know, between siblings. I mean, it happens very much uh, through the former uh, Spanish colonies and no one thinks about it much. There are some, in some areas, in some countries where they have, of course, their own history where to being uh, called Indian and with the sense of, you know, native, but, but it, it, it could be, you know, it's called, it be used as an insult, but it's because that person has made a choice of speaking in a way that it's not that, you know, proper Castilian uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, way uh, or grammatically correct and all that. And it's also chosen to dress in a way that it's not the European way. It's decided to live in a way, you know, that it's not. That's you know, associated with the indigenous identity. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So that, um, that is a, um, a layer. Another one, of course, the obvious, you know, just going by the color of the skin or something or the region where that person was born and all that. But 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 there's a deeper kind of snobbery, I feel like, that exists within the language, like just coded within the language that you use. And then people, they they choose to speak in a particular way and have that special you know the character as a the the, the spaniards um uh, with the the pronunciation of the c so you know like th- in a zapato zapato <laughs> and uh we can all imitate it latin americans right we can imitate it but but it's not something that we do in everyday life but if 
you go in a situation like acting or, um, you know, you're just going to uh, perform in such in, uh, something, you know, a uh, poem or something, there, there is a tendency that, that it's, uh, I don't know, pure, I guess, to just go into that part of your intonation. Everything can be more, sounding more like the, the, the Spanish, the Spaniards. I have known and I have been in in situations where I have seen friends, people we in the family, we consider as friends who would actually switch in mm-hmm. the middle of the conversation, depending on who would walk in. Really? And then, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And they, they could, especially older you know, mm-hmm. friends of my grandmother and all that, and they would switch. They would talk about going to switch to Castilian. go plaza. Let's go to plaza. Vamos a almorzar. But were they were they were they were they affecting it, or were they putting the other person on? Well, it was on TV. There was this particular person. I mean, that we always talk about her because you know she would do it on TV. She would always stop with it. And uh, every time she was on television, she would just go that route. Um, but no, as uh, the young people, I mean, we can have fun and we can and can we can just just do like you would do a British accent, you know, in conversation just to have fun. I, honestly, like you don't want to hear my British accent. Like I sometimes accidentally start sliding into a British accent when I have been around my British friends too much. And it's not pretty. Oh, let me hear it. They made me Oh, stop. God. <laughs> well you read your when you read your poems to students you step in yeah to that yeah, yeah I do. You do. I all do. the time all the time it's fine it's fine again it's a choice yeah. you can do that you're aware that you're doing it what i have trouble is when you think that you have to do it to impress somebody not the real you Mm-hmm. But also the idea that it's a suppression of your own culture and your own identity yeah. for what you think is the preferred identity of the traditional mm-hmm. oppressor of your culture. Right, right. Um, when you and Mike were talking about the films, I was I was saying I said on a first uh, level, you know, you can I mean, interpretation. You can just go into, oh well, this this could be the good versus evil kind of thing, right? And we can take that to what we're talking about now and your question about always choosing a Spaniard for the role of Dracula, especially mm-hmm. in the movies in Mexico, because Mexico, I mean, like the history that they have, of course, Spain is still is something that yeah. is troublesome to this day. In a lot of our countries, we feel like, yes, Spain took advantage and did all these things and da 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 da. We, yes, there is a conflict. We still can feel that way. But at the same time, we allow it to happen. We, yeah. we actually, in the presence of, of Spaniards, we do uh, feel and subjugate and we feel that they can, yeah. That, they, I mean, that there's some kind of, Something that they know that we don't know, or they can put the prestigious of the I don't know something. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I don't think those of us in America who are white in America have anything analogous really to think of when we think of this. I mean, some people might claim we could think of like the British in this way, but that's more of a fetishization mm-hmm. of the British than it is an actual feeling of, oh no, we should be British. No. I mean, I think I think it's a very specific feeling on the part of yes but um all the conflicts that all the complexities and everything that allows for fascinating performances i think on stage because <laughs> you're bringing it's a lot of energy that is presented in 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 use i think yeah. and there's so much linguistic fascination there to unpack Mm-hmm. I have yeah. a question. And what is that? I have a modest question. Yes. How modest? Exceedingly modest. Okay. I was thinking about Dracula in comparison to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Okay. And with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, what you had was a representation of the McCarthy hearings, where people were volunteering to go down and testify. Yeah. And, there, mm-hmm. and nobody knew how the... What, who the hell that was, you know, they, yeah. old friends couldn't recognize these people who were volunteering to testify. And so I was wondering if it was, there something about uh, the Bela Lugosi Dracula film that was analogous to that film. Do, do you think that the, what, was there something about the Dracula uh, film that spoke to people of its era with, because of an external contact I mean, I usually feel like with most horror films, it is reacting in some way to playing out some kind of trauma that is going on, either consciously or unconsciously. I don't know. Like, I feel like in some sense, it might have been a reaction to the excess of the 20s, at least the English language one. I feel like on some level, it might have been meant as a warning against the excess of the Roaring Twenties right before. I mean, it's it's right before the crash of Wall Street. And it's it's almost sort of like, ladies, don't go down this path because this transgressive effeminate man will get you and bite you in the neck if you're misbehaved at all. And if you wander off the path, you can be seduced. You know, that that scene when Dracula, you know. Yeah. Covers her with the cloak. and Yeah. And she's outside. I mean, that is just phenomenal. You know, that's so symbolic. And she walked there by herself. And a lot happens in between. And then we hear her scream. Yeah. And it's not, she doesn't seem as uh, the nurse, right? Right. Yeah. It's, um, there's a lot. I also just feel like in the Spanish language Dracula, like you've got these lingering close-ups all over the place that allow all of the performances to actually register with the viewer, mm-hmm. you know? And when you think about why the runtime is so much longer, I think it's about that too. It's not just about individual sequences that were made longer, but it's also the fact that they left time for these extreme close-ups where you could actually see faces and you took the time to actually linger on the face of say <laughs> the you know impressions like the nurse the whatever you want to call him you know renfield's keeper <laughs> yeah yeah they he 
and uh, and the nurse, you know, they're supposed to be. I mean, that that the 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 funny, the relief in the yeah. and and um, that that work well. I was I was thinking about how successful the transfer was when Mike was talking about the 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 original. You know, mm-hmm. the story comes from the novel, and then the epistolary novel, and then goes into a play. And then from the play, you know, you have mm-hmm. to grip. That is so hard yeah. to be able to achieve that balance and, and be able to make it work. You have work of art and it's this, this is it. And how could it be a play? And it how could it be? I never yeah. heard of an yeah. epistolary play. And then the ending is so amazing, so powerful. It's just as though you're watching the play. Exactly. And you feel immersed in it. Yeah. And it works. That's right. It we're, does. We're, you know, to <laughs> watching this in 2020 and, and it still yeah. was affecting. So that was pretty cool. I thought it was very cool. Are you aware that we have the Invisible Man on our wall? I, I am. I've been to your house, sir, several times. He's a particularly frightening invisible man in this case. Scarier than a vampire, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also want you to know, I just recently bought the Universal Invisible Man set that has all 30 movies that were ever associated with the Invisible Man franchise. Really? Yes. You are hardcore. I am hardcore. What? I go hard, man. <laughs> How fun. The one I'm anxious to see is um, the Wolfman. Yeah, but that's not the original Wolfman. That's the Lon Chaney, the later Wolfman, just to warn you. Claude Rains, Lon Chaney. It's the Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman. And Bella Lugosi is in it, too. And the Phantom of the Opera that's on there is the later one, too. You know that Bella Lugosi was offered the, the role of Frankenstein, and he said, no. Hmm. I want to be seen. Why would, would I be in there? I would take that role. <laughs> he regretted it. He regretted that. All the rest. Well, of I feel life. bad for Frankenstein because in Frankenstein, the monster is the person, and the yeah. people are the monsters. Yeah, it's a reversal. Yeah. Well, additionally, Frankenstein is another great epistolary novel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, the power comes from sort of the documentary aspect of that book. And you also have, in addition, the power of the monster specifically as the truly eloquent being. And then in all the film versions, pretty much... He's mute mm-hmm. or nearly mute. And it it really drives me crazy. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't drive you crazy like it drives me crazy. You need to watch more. That's where it is. Yeah. <laughs> we, need to, we, need to, we need to finish watching these now. Okay. Right now. Get to it. Mm-hmm. Get to it. But I do want to just quickly ask you guys. So... If you were trying to sell people on which version to watch, what would be your advice to people if they were like, nah, I, I just I just want to watch the English language version. I don't want to have to deal with two versions of the same movie. Like, why, why would I watch anything other than the English language version? Why? Why are you going to make me do Having that? seen them back to back, I can't imagine that decision. I can't imagine making that choice. You but get, say you you're talking so to someone who 
just doesn't get it. You tell them that if they don't do it, they'll have to eat beets. (laughs) (laughs) I never had to. I will make you eat beets and I will. I never had to just, you know, like I mentioned it to you. I mean, I just always talk about it. You know, if it, whatever we're discussing about great films, I, and my students, I give them a choice. They can watch it, you know, and they said, you just watch it in Spanish. Of course. Yeah. No. And I think it's wonderful that you introduced me to this film because I actually didn't know the story of the making of this film until you brought it to my attention. And I had the collection that I sent you. Mm -hmm. Personally, I owned it. And I just never even realized that there was a place in the DVD that I could navigate to. It's a little hidden to even get to that document, to the documentary material, and then also to the Spanish language Dracula. I think the critics know, but even um, if you you go to a Spanish... um, uh, website or some newspapers. Oh, yeah. There's not a lot of people who know about it yeah. because this was what was the story that this version was lost for a long time, the Spanish version. Mm-hmm. And then they found the complete version in Cuba. And I knew about it because I was teaching Spanish in high school and in one of the our journals uh, for Spanish teachers, they were talking and there was a review of the film because it had been then released, you know, they have worked on it and all that. And that was the whole article. I thought, oh, I'm going to order that. And I got a, a video. But mm-hmm. I don't think um, it's something that it's so well known. Well, and and I just recently attended a Miskatonic Institute lecture specifically on Mexican horror, mm. and they spent a lot of time kind of talking about Carlos Villarías and the mm-hmm. general template that was set by his Dracula mm. in terms of always having the colonial Dracula. It, it's it's a very interesting thing to me, you know, when you look at it in terms of the overall picture of Spanish language cinema, but also specifically Mexican cinema. Yes. Um, I just find that so fascinating. It was, um, it was quite an experience to watch it after all these many years and to notice all these differences in the... Um, presentation of the of the scenes everything around it and of course the different accents I was able I was tuned into that so much more because it's been a while so the 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 brain picks up you know (laughs) yes that's wonderful yeah yeah they I missed uh I mean the musicalization of course, I know that it's just in the transition and it's going from... It's pretty much uh, only in the intro yeah. and the outro yeah. for the most part. And it's exactly the same as in the English language version. Mm-hmm. There's like no diversity there. What is there on the soundtrack that's different between the two is just how they play with the sound effects so creatively. And mm-hmm. I love that they did that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I think that... Everything was the same as I remember seeing a poster, the poster for the movie. It was mm-hmm. exactly the both versions the same. This, of course, the only difference was the stress mark on the A for Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. 
like, <laughs> and talk about, you know, la magia. La magia. <laughs> but. Well, I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to watch the movie, both movies again and again and again and talk about them with me and share this lovely conversation. I know you have so much teaching to prepare for tomorrow. What, how fun it is to see you. Thank you. This was it's so fun to see you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we'll be releasing an episode a day in the build-up to Halloween. On our very next episode, we join forces with the Scene Snobs podcast to host together a panel on problematic horror, featuring the voices of actors, performers, and podcasters in the film and entertainment industry. Join us next week, but in the meantime, check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where we are at Omnibus Ride. And if you want to support the work that we do, please leave a five-star review wherever you found this episode. It truly does help. See you next time you catch a ride on the Omnibus.